Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, and sometimes my cat Winston joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the show. February 3rd is National Missing Persons Day. Joanne Lowitzer, the founder of National Missing Persons Day, wanted to create this day to garner more awareness for missing persons cases after her daughter, Alexandria, went missing in 2010. We've covered a lot of missing persons cases since the start of this podcast. Sadly, there's so many more cases that we haven't covered and more people go missing every day. According to NamUs, the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, there are nearly 23,400 missing persons in the United States and its territories as of June 2023. Since we cover Pacific Northwest cases, I wanted to highlight the numbers from Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. According to NamUs, there are 151 open missing and unidentified persons cases in Idaho. In Oregon, there are 670 open missing and unidentified cases. And Washington State? Well, Washington falls within the top 10 states for missing and unidentified persons with 1,021 open cases. These numbers are tragic and highlight that more work needs to be done to keep these cases alive in the media and the public. According to the website Uncovered, which has a database for missing persons across the United States, Quote, getting media attention for a missing person can be a difficult and emotional process, end quote. I'll be including links to some specific resources for families of missing and murdered Indigenous persons, kids, and other missing persons in our show notes. But before we get into today's cases, I wanted to cover some important highlights to remember if someone you know goes missing. The most important thing to remember is that there's no waiting period for you to file a missing persons report. Law enforcement may try and tell you otherwise, 911 dispatchers may try and tell you otherwise, but contacting law enforcement right away, especially when the missing person is a child or an elderly person, is critical to helping find the person sooner rather than later. When you fill out a missing persons report, you'll be asked for a ton of information about the missing person. We'll include a link to Uncovered's Missing Persons Checklist in the show notes. You can find all of the information that law enforcement will ask for when you file a report. But generally, you'll want to have the person's name, physical description, where you last saw them, when you last spoke with them, and how, text, messenger app, phone. You'll want to know what they were last seen wearing and any pertinent medical information. Uncovered also has a template for a missing persons poster that you can use for both flyers and social media. Okay, that was a lot of information, but I think it's important to cover because you never expect a loved one or someone you know to go missing. So you often find yourself trying to figure out what to do and having to navigate a totally foreign system. Please use these resources and share them with those who may need them. And if you're a family member or friend of a missing person and you'd like us to cover their case, please reach out. When it comes to missing persons cases, we don't ever want to turn a family away simply because they're outside the Pacific Northwest. You can email us at truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. All right, let's get into today's episode. We're going to cover four missing persons cases from Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. 
We'll start in Rathdrum, Idaho with the disappearance of Deborah Sykes. Deborah was born on January 30, 1967. She was described as a, quote, free spirit who did what she wanted and knew how to fend for herself, end quote. Deborah was married and had one son. She was also close to her parents. Unfortunately, that's really all the background information that there is on Deborah because her case hasn't received hardly any media coverage. On February 12, 2005, Deborah was seen hanging out with her friends at a bar. She went to a friend's house after the bar, and her husband picked her up the next day. Deborah was known to drink heavily due to her depression. She was also taking medication for her depression. On the morning of February 13th, Deborah's husband went to the grocery store while Deborah was still sleeping. When he came back, Deborah was gone. She'd taken off her wedding ring and she left behind her purse and all her other belongings. It appeared that Deborah had left on foot. Deborah's husband told investigators that his wife had left in the past, but she always came back after a day or two. He also told investigators that Deborah had been distraught at the time of her disappearance because there was a warrant out for her arrest for writing bad checks. Police looked into this lead, but they ultimately decided that Deborah didn't walk away from her life because of this warrant. Deborah's husband was questioned, but he was never considered a suspect. Investigators also interviewed Deborah's parents. Deborah's dad told them that she would always call him if she was in trouble or needed help, but neither Deborah's mom or dad had heard from her. Deborah's dad is a private investigator, and he began his own investigation into Deborah's disappearance. He put up flyers and he interviewed Deborah's friends. There was no indication of any strained relationships between Deborah and her husband or Deborah and her friends. An anonymous tip came in at some point stating that Deborah was living in Montana. Police looked into this tip, but they didn't find Deborah there. There's a $10,000 reward for information in Deborah's case. If you have any information on the disappearance of Deborah Sykes, please contact the Rathdrum PD at 208-687-0711. Patricia Swamberg was born on January 14, 1958. At the time of her disappearance, she was a healthcare worker at an elderly care center in Corvallis, Oregon. Patricia was last seen on August 10, 1992. One of her coworkers saw Patricia leave work to use a payphone, and Patricia was never seen again. Patricia's boss reported her as a missing person on August 12th after Patricia didn't show up for work. That same day, police found Patricia's car unlocked and abandoned in the commercial district of downtown Corvallis. Patricia's purse was inside the car. In fact, all of Patricia's clothing and possessions were found either in her car or in her apartment. When Patricia went missing, she had an on-again, off-again boyfriend named Clarence Percival. Clarence told police that he last saw Patricia on August 10th. It's unclear if Clarence was ever considered a person of interest, but he's now deceased. Patricia had also been in an abusive relationship in the past. She had a restraining order against her ex-husband. When police interviewed the ex-husband, he told them that he hadn't seen Patricia since the day before she went missing. This strikes me as a little odd because Patricia had a restraining order against him, so he probably shouldn't have been in contact with her. But police didn't appear to have added the ex-husband to their person of interest list. 
Detectives identified a person of interest early on in the investigation, but they never publicly named this person. They've also said that this person is now deceased. Patricia's case is still an active investigation, but it's considered a cold case because the majority of leads ran out in the first year. Detectives consider Patricia's disappearance suspicious, and her family believes that she's no longer alive. If you have any information on the disappearance of Patricia Swanberg, please contact Detective Christy Molina at 541-766-6782 or email tip at corvallisoregon.gov. The next case I'm going to cover comes with an added trigger warning for child abuse, sexual exploitation, and human trafficking. Kelsey Collins had a tough childhood. She was born on April 30th, 1991. Kelsey had intestinal issues when she was born, and she spent most of her first year of life in the hospital. Kelsey was the youngest of three girls, and she also had a brother. Kelsey and her siblings lived with their mom and stepdad. Her stepdad was violent and abused all of the kids and Kelsey's mom. Because of her stepdad's abuse, by the age of five, Kelsey started having seizures at night. When Kelsey was seven, her mom moved herself and the kids out of the Midwest to Washington State and she changed their names in order to get away from the stepdad. The stepdad was later convicted of abusing two of the kids in the late 90s and he was sentenced to 21 years in prison. When Kelsey was 12, she started running away from home and skipping school. Kelsey became sexually active, started drinking, and she both used and sold drugs. Kelsey was in special education classes because of a learning disability, and she was only able to read at a fifth grade level. Kelsey was frustrated by her difficulties in school, which is why she started skipping school in the first place. And Kelsey continued to spiral in her teens. She stole a car so that she could go to the mall, and her mom ended up calling the police on her. After that, Kelsey's mom said that her daughter was in and out of juvenile detention. Kelsey also started dating an older man who bought her presents and was really nice to her, at first. But, as most things are, the man was too good to be true. He was actually a pimp. Kelsey initially told her boyfriend that she wouldn't engage in sex work, but the man eventually forced her to do so in the Seattle and Portland areas. In January 2008, Portland police stopped 16-year-old Kelsey on suspicion of prostitution. Just an FYI, I'm using the word prostitution here because that's what the crime is actually still called, unfortunately. But the Portland police didn't arrest Kelsey for any crime. Instead, they called her mom, Sarah, to come and pick her up. Oregon has a completely different approach to minors who engage in sex work. In Oregon, minors are rarely charged with prostitution. Because of their age, police consider them rape victims and they treat them as such. But in Seattle, Kelsey was, quote, arrested and booked as a prostitute and put in juvenile detention, end quote. According to the Portland investigator involved in Kelsey's case, Kelsey was a quote-unquote easy target for sex traffickers. She was easy to manipulate, she was looking for a father figure, she had low self-esteem, and she wasn't doing very well in school. The investigator, because of his compassion and understanding for sex trafficking victims, convinced Kelsey to testify against her pimp, Donico Johnson. 
Kelsey testified before a grand jury, which led to an indictment against Johnson for the sex trafficking of Kelsey because he drove Kelsey from Seattle to Portland in order for her to engage in sex work. Kelsey actually told her mom that she was going to Olympia that weekend to hang out with a friend. Kelsey was last seen on May 9, 2009 at around 5.30 p.m. Kelsey was living in Everett, Washington at the time, and she planned to take public transportation from her house to Seattle to meet her boyfriend. But Kelsey never made it to Seattle. At the time of her disappearance, Kelsey had a small black purse, her MP3 player, a hairbrush, her ID, and a few dollars cash. She also had her cell phone, but it was turned off around 8 p.m. on the 9th, and it was never turned back on. Kelsey's mom, Sarah, last saw her daughter the day before she went missing. Kelsey had helped her get flowers ready for planting, and Kelsey was busy planning festivities for Mother's Day. But when Mother's Day came, Kelsey didn't come home, and she didn't call her mom. Even though Kelsey kind of came and went as she pleased, it was out of character for her not to be in touch with her family, especially her mom. Sarah reported Kelsey as a missing person to Everett Police. But the Everett police didn't do anything to investigate Kelsey's case. Sarah sent emails asking the FBI and U.S. Attorney for help, just trying to get someone to look into Kelsey's disappearance. Sarah found out that after five months of Kelsey being gone, she still hadn't been entered into the National Missing Persons database. Because Kelsey was missing, she wasn't available to testify against her pimp. The case against Johnson fell apart and was eventually dismissed based on a lack of evidence in March 2010. But in June 2010, Johnson pled guilty to trafficking a 14-year-old girl in a different case and he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Although Johnson has never been charged with any crime related to Kelsey's disappearance, her family believes that Kelsey's grand jury testimony is the reason for her disappearance. Shortly after Kelsey's disappearance, her mom, Sarah, drove to Portland to put up missing persons posters. The assistant U.S. attorney in charge of the case against Johnson called Sarah and asked her to take the posters down because he was afraid she would jeopardize the case against Johnson by, quote, publicizing the absence of the star witness, end quote. Before her disappearance, Kelsey told her mom, Sarah, that she was terrified about testifying in front of the grand jury. And even worse, Kelsey wasn't offered witness protection. The federal case wasn't handled very quickly. It took 13 months before Kelsey was even called to testify before the grand jury. When the case against Johnson started, Kelsey was still a minor. She was 16. So she was eligible for intensive counseling services. But no one offered these services to Kelsey, and no one told her mom about them until Kelsey was too old to use them. And no one ever mentioned witness protection for Kelsey, even though there were options available for minors at the time. Kelsey's mom was vocal and critical of the assistant U.S. attorney for not offering her daughter witness protection or other options to keep her daughter safe. And in response, the assistant U.S. attorney claimed that there wasn't, quote, one iota of information, end quote, that Kelsey was in danger or had been threatened. According to the assistant U.S. attorney, they believed that Kelsey was, quote, safe and she was doing well. You can't say her disappearance is the result of the prosecution of Johnson, end quote. To me, this statement is just trying to deflect blame off of the AUSA's office and trying to distance themselves from Kelsey's disappearance. And I'm not saying that the U.S. attorney is completely to blame. 
But the grand jury testimony that Kelsey gave against her pimp likely played a role in her disappearance. In November 2012, a tip came in that Kelsey might be buried in a wooded area in Seattle's Beacon Hill neighborhood. The area was searched, but nothing was found. If you have any information on the disappearance of Kelsey Collins, please contact the Everett Police Department at 425-257-8400. Today's sponsor is Aloha Ellie & Co. Aloha Ellie is owned by Jessica and she's the creator of everything in the shop. She started the business in May 2019 after realizing she had a ton of fun styling her adorable cat, Miss Ellie, in different accessories. Jessica found a therapeutic hobby in sewing, and she's so proud it's become an official small business. Every item in the shop is lovingly created with a lot of thought and detail. Jessica's originally from Hawaii, which is where her shop gets its Aloha flair. If you're local to the Pacific Northwest, you can find Aloha Ellie items at Puppernickel Dog Barkery and Pacific Pets in Hillsboro, Oregon. But don't worry if you're not local. Aloha Ellie also ships domestically and to Canada, Australia, and the UK. And coming this spring, Jessica will be adding more people items to the shop like tote bags, hats, and t-shirts. And she'll have customizable vinyl decals for pet bandanas. We'll include a link to Aloha Ellie in our show notes. And be sure to use code CRIMECAT to save 15% on your order. Lenoria Jones was born on January 3rd, 1992. Because Lenoria was born with cocaine in her system, her mom gave up her parental rights. Lenoria never lived with her mom and she became a ward of the state. Lenoria spent the first two years of her life living with her grandparents, aka her mom's parents, in Spokane, Washington. But for some reason, Lenoria's great aunt fought for and was awarded temporary custody of Lenoria. Lenoria's grandparents weren't happy about this. But in the summer of 1994, when Lenoria was just two years old, she moved in with her great aunt, Berlene. Berlene had several other kids living with her at the time, and she was running a daycare in her home. She had a 20-year-old daughter, an 18-year-old daughter, a 9-year-old son, and a 13-month-old grandson who all lived with her. And then she added 2-year-old Lenoria. Because Lenoria had been born with cocaine in her system, she was later diagnosed with ADHD and she was put on medication. Lenoria had only been taking this medication for a few days before she went missing. Which brings us to the day that Lenoria disappeared. On July 20th, 1995, at 9.42 a.m., Berlene called police to report that her great-niece Lenoria was missing. Berlene initially told police that she was separated from Lenoria in the toy section of a Target store. But when police said that they'd be checking store surveillance, Berlene then changed her story. She now claimed that she might have been separated from Lenoria in the parking lot on her way into the Target. But when police did go back and check the surveillance footage from Target, there was no evidence that Lenoria had ever been inside the store. A witness also came forward and told police that they saw Berlene in the Target parking lot and she was alone. There was no sign of Lenoria in the car either. Berlene told police that she was running several errands before she went to Target. She left home with Lenoria at 8 a.m. First, they went to the car wash, then to 7-Eleven, and then to a grocery store. When the gas station clerk was interviewed by police, they said that no one was with Berlene at the gas station. Police couldn't find any evidence that Lenoria had gone on any of these errands with Berlene. 
Police wanted Berlin to take a polygraph test because of her changing stories and the contradictory evidence. Before she was scheduled to take the test, Berlin's story changed again. Now she claimed that two men took Lenoria in the alley behind her home. But Berlin later admitted that was a lie. Although Berlin had called police at 9.42 a.m., investigators discovered that an hour earlier, Berlin had called one of her daughters. And during this phone call, Berlin told her daughter that she didn't know where Lenoria was. When confronted with this information, Berlin had no explanation for her hour-long delay in calling police to report Lenoria missing. In yet another version of events, Berlin claimed that Lenoria was safe and living in an undisclosed location. And the stories continued to change. Berlin also told police that Lenoria wandered away from home. And then she claimed that she wanted to tell police where Lenoria was, but she couldn't. Berlin was interviewed a total of three times after Lenoria went missing, and she told at least one different account or version of the events every time that she was interviewed. Quote, because Lenoria was a ward of the state when she went missing, DHS took Berlin to court to compel her to tell what happened to Lenoria. End quote. Unfortunately, Berlin didn't provide any new information. The last time Lenoria was seen by someone outside the family was four days before she went missing. Her last sighting was at church. Two days before Lenoria went missing, her mom had called Berlin and asked to speak with her daughter, but Berlin would not let Lenoria's mom speak to her. Berlin was put on house arrest for four months after Lenoria's disappearance for her failure to provide case information. Berlin's daycare was also shut down by the state. She tried to reopen the daycare in 1996, but she was denied. Berlin's two adult daughters were also interviewed and also provided conflicting reports. One of the daughters said that she saw Lenoria sleeping, while the other said that Berlin and Lenoria had left at 8 a.m. The call that Berlin made to her daughters about Lenoria was about 20 minutes before Berlin got to Target. At the time of Lenoria's disappearance, Berlin was in the process of legally adopting her. In September 1995, a few months after Lenoria went missing, the state released a statement saying that it was hesitant to grant Berlin parental rights over Lenoria because Berlin didn't, quote, understand the needs of children, end quote, and had exhibited poor judgment in the past. This is extremely concerning to me because at the time, Berlin was literally operating a daycare out of her home and had young children living with her full time. If the state had these concerns about Berlin, why was she allowed to have temporary custody of Lenoria and why was she still allowed to run her daycare? Berlin eventually hired a lawyer and he told police not to have any further contact with his client. He claimed that quote-unquote stress-induced psychosis from Lenoria's disappearance had caused Berlin to quote disassociate, experience short-term memory loss, and exhibit withdrawn behavior, end quote. He said that Berlin had changed her story because she was nervous and scared of authorities. Police haven't spoken to Berlin since 1995. Police also haven't interviewed Berlin's kids since then either. Berlin never ended up taking a polygraph test, nor did her adult daughters. Berlin now lives in Spokane, Washington. Shortly before Lenoria's disappearance, Berlin had contacted Lenoria's daughter to ask for an increased dose of her ADHD medication. 
Police learned that Lenoria had only been taking this medication for a few days before she went missing. The medication she was prescribed wasn't usually a medication given to kids because of the serious side effects. Some investigators theorized that Lenoria died of an accidental overdose of her ADHD medication, but there was no evidence to support this theory. Police believe that Lenoria is now deceased. Berlin and her family haven't cooperated with the investigation since 1995. Lenoria's mom believes that her great aunt and cousins are responsible for the presumed death of Lenoria. If you have any information on the disappearance of Lenoria Jones, please contact Tacoma PD at 253-591-5959. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please share these cases on your social media and tell your friends and family about them. We'll include the tip information in our show notes, along with the resources we mentioned for missing persons. Again, if you're a family or friend of a missing person and you'd like us to cover their case, please reach out to us. We will always cover cold cases no matter where the person is from. You can reach out on social media or you can email us at truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at winstonthecatpdx. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.